Well, everybody is a victim, it seems. That seems to be the credo for the 21st century, to figure out why you deserve special treatment or why your feelings matter more than others because somehow you're entitled because you were the victim of something. Either that, or if you weren't the actual victim of something, you became a victim of your own predilections for addiction. One of the things I always found amusing is that people who uh, recover from addiction, which I congratulate them for, uh, feel they need to tell everyone about it the first time they ever meet them. Hi, my name is Tom. I'm, I'm a recovering addict. All right, now I just teach uh, drug counseling. I mean, do people who have cancer, the first time they meet you, have they never met you before? Hi, my name is uh, Tom. Uh, I had cancer last year, but I, uh, I beat the big C like John Wayne. Uh, how are you? Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast episode. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. Do so either one of three ways. Go to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending whether you use iPhone or Android, and search for the NPO podcast and subscribe. Or download the Podbean app at either of those two locations, and you can subscribe that way. Whichever of the three methods you choose... You will be notified as soon as a new episode is uploaded. You won't miss a thing. It doesn't cost anything, and you'll be able to see the sh- uh, to listen to the show regularly. You can also leave reviews, and we please do ask that you leave reviews for the show, because the more reviews you leave, the more readily we will pop up in search results when people search those app stores for new content, and it will help the show grow. So please. Leave us a review. Leave us a good review. And even if it's just one or two sentences, don't just check off the stars. Give a little something for people to read. It will help us uh, immeasurably. So I'm not looking to make light of people who have a legitimate issue or they were victims, but uh, some of these things seem to be awfully convenient. Now, why do I talk about this? Because I want to do something a little different today. Usually we're always talking about presidential politics, but I want to talk about something a little different You do, after all, listen to the show to get opinion that you might not get in other places or observations on things you might not get in other places. And I heard a couple of uh, radio talk show hosts talking about this revelation with AOC, Alejandria Ocasio-Cortez, but I wanted to tie it into a, a bit of a bigger issue. So let's get right into it. Apparently... AOC has revealed on Twitter that she is the survivor of a sexual assault. And because of that, uh, she doesn't like the fact that people are saying, let's move on from the Capitol riots. She's comparing the people saying move on after the Capitol riots to the tactics of abusers uh, where they say, you know, move on after the sexual assault. She described how she hid in the bathroom in her office as the President Donald Trump supporting mob, which is a falsehood, by the way. This is being reported by NBC. It wasn't just a President Donald Trump supporting mob. It were many people from Black Lives Matter and other leftist organizations that deliberately engaged in that conduct to try and make Trump's supporters look bad. Trump rallies throughout his presidency and through the campaigns have always been the epitome of civility, and a hallmark of them is that they even cleaned up the places after they finished the rallies. There was never any disorder at Trump rallies. Um, But this is what they're talking about here on the riot. She says, I was in my bathroom, I just hear, where is she? 
And this was the moment where I thought everything was over. It turns out the person who said, where is she, was a Capitol Police officer looking for her to make sure that she was safe. But she wants us to believe that she now sees everything through the eyes of an sexual assault victim. Quote, the reason I'm getting emotional in this moment is because these folks who tell us to move on, that it's not a big deal, that we should forget what's happened, or even telling us to apologize, these are the same tactics of abusers. And I am a survivor of sexual assault, and I haven't told many people that in my life. That's interesting. You haven't told many people that, but now you decide to tell everyone on Twitter. Now, it's a little bit interesting to me. We need accountability, she says, because accountability is not about revenge. It's not about getting back at people. It's not about any of that. It's about creating safety. We are not safe with people who hold positions of power who are willing to endanger the lives of others if they think it will score them a political point because they want, they want to run for president four years from now. Well, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, no one should be more familiar with that than you and your party. Wasn't it you and your party who've been trying to score points, calling for violence against Trump supporters and Trump administration members, Maxine Waters telling everyone to get in their face, run them out of town, impeach the son of a bitch? Wasn't you who started all that, you and your ilk? And now all of a sudden, it's no longer a good tactic. In fact... Talking about not wanting revenge, about accountability, wasn't it you and your supporters or people like you that trashed Judge Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings and brought this, this relic out who, it turns out, purged her entire social media because she was a vehement anti-Trumpist, vehement leftist radical, and she was never sexually abused by Brett Kavanaugh. I find it very convenient when this woman gets there. She remembers that it was Brett Kavanaugh. That she remembers unquestionably, but she can't remember anything else. She can't remember when it happened, where it happened, how it happened, who was there. She can't remember anything. And all the people that she did manage to remember that she said was there, none of them can remember the incident. No, I think uh, this is the pot calling the kettle black, but let's dig into this a little bit about uh, AOC. Now, I find it interesting that it is this assault on the Capitol that caused AOC to feel these emotions that apparently have not been dealt with adequately, either by therapy or a little bit of introspection following her sexual assault, uh, that brought this issue to the fore and caused her to confess this before a massive Twitter audience. Shouldn't something more along the lines of sexual assaults or perversions spurred her to speak about this? The Kavanaugh hearings, which she opposed, wouldn't that have been the appropriate time for AOC to say, as a victim of sexual assault, I personally am offended by this man trying to get on the Supreme Court? No, that wasn't a sufficient provocation. I really have to cast doubt on whether or not she's actually the victim of a sexual assault. If she is, I'll be the first one to apologize, but I don't believe it. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden now, has been known in D.C. and elsewhere for years to be a pervert and a groper. Shouldn't AOC have been offended when the Democratic Party that she champions 
decided to nominate a serial groper and pervert as their frontrunner, as their presidential candidate. That didn't cause her to reconnect with these feelings as a sexual assault victim? No. No sexual assault on the part of Joe Biden. Uh, Kami Harris making references to Joe Biden being a sexual assaulter, a pervert. Um, The allegations made by Christine Ford uh, before the Senate committee in the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, this didn't cause her to juxtapose her own history as a sexual assault victim with the issue of the day. But now that the Capitol has been breached, it all of a sudden brought her back to that terrible day when she was sexually assaulted, and we're supposed to believe that. We're supposed to believe it unquestioningly. Meanwhile, everything she's saying about moving on, these are things that her party wanted us to do. Move on. Get in their face. Don't let it go. So, as I made a couple of notes here for myself, as I've been saying, we can either accept that this is, a, is true, in which case, she, if she is still so deeply disturbed by this past event, perhaps she hasn't adequately dealt with it by way of therapy. If so, if this scar could be negatively affecting her judgment as a legislature to the detriment of others, is she even qualified to serve in Congress? Should she not resign? Further, if she was indeed a victim of sexual assault in the past, as I said, why weren't these fears awakened by earlier and more relevant events? These are the questions people should be asking. And if she's not a victim of sexual assault, this is a rather contemptible card to play. And then I began to think, well, if... AOC is potentially unhinged and assuming, operating on the assumption that she's being truthful and that she is a sexual assault survivor and victim, it's clear that it's still bothering her. I mean, I find it incredible that more recent events that were more relevant to her sexual assault that took place before the assault on the Capitol that I just mentioned didn't bring these feelings to the fore. But... um, be that as it may, it's clear that it's affecting her judgment, in which case she may not be the best person to be making decisions about legislation. Perhaps she should recuse herself from voting on certain legislations. Maybe she just should resign from Congress altogether. But who else is exerting great influence over our lives today? It's not just the government. As we've seen in the 2016 election, as we saw definitely in the 2020 election, and as we certainly saw in the aftermath of the 2020 election, it's big tech that is exerting more influence and power, more ability to shape public opinion, even than perhaps some of the mainstream media outfits and the government itself. And who is big tech? I'm deliberately leaving Jeff Bezos out of this. I don't really consider him big tech. He's a big online shopping uh, mechanism, but he's not really in the, in the business of shaping public opinion. His only involvement in the big tech purge of conservative thought was the fact that uh, most people don't know that Amazon, in addition to selling things, also sells server space for 
people that um, websites and things that need server space on a grand scale, they're one of the bigger sellers of server space. And it was on their servers that the parlor app was hosted and they purged them from there, pulled the rug out from under them. So until they're able to find an alternative server provider, they're going to be uh, up the creek without a paddle. But that, it seems to me, can be solved. If you get enough investment capital, and I'm sure it's out there, you can get servers to uh, host you, and you'll, you'll be fine. Or you can buy and build your own servers. But there are other issues. There's other big tech that's out there. Apple, Facebook, Twitter, and Google. These are all the big tech people. Now, I don't want to spend the time on all of these guys this show, but let's just look at two of the big players. I mean, Google is big. Don't get me wrong. Eric Schmidt, these guys are, these guys are big. And Apple is big, but Apple isn't just one person. You know, Apple had the face of Steve Jobs on it, but since then, uh, not so much closely identified with one person other than you could say Tim Cook, but never the way that Steve Jobs loomed large over that company. But Apple purged Parler from its store. So even if Parler gets new servers, they can't get the app sold to people or downloaded by people who use uh, Apple devices. Likewise, Google purged it from the Google Play Store. So people who use Android devices can't get it. And that's it. Android and iOS, that's all you've got. Uh, but there may be a way to work around that. But let's look at the two big ones that really came under the scrutiny of Congress. Facebook and Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg ostensibly founded Facebook, although many people think he stole it from his Harvard classmates, but that was an undisclosed settlement, so we'll never know the truth. But Mark Zuckerberg is the founder and primary stockholder of Facebook. And for a man who's supposed to be brilliant, he's barely coherent when you make him speak, when you, when you hear him speak. Mark Zuckerberg is is a misfit. He's a socially inept misfit. He can't interact with people, which is one of the reasons why he created this technological wall that he could hide behind to speak to people. The CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, is increasingly suspected of being autistic. Specifically, there seems to be strong evidence that he has Asperger's syndrome. So here we are, two of the biggest companies by which we get tremendous amounts of our information, large segments of the American and even the worldwide population relying on what they're getting from Facebook and Twitter as news and information are having their information that they're so dependent on filtered through portals that are run by socially inept misfits and in the case of Dorsey, someone who probably suffers from a quasi-debilitating disease, uh, I wouldn't call it not a disease, but an illness. It certainly colors the way he views people, wouldn't you think? Zuckerberg certainly can't have a, a normal relationship with people. He's a weirdo. Dorsey's a weirdo. And they're uber-leftists. And then we have those politicians who suffer from common 
maladies. Two in particular, entitlement and stupidity. Now, why do I mention that? Because we have Il Duce here in the New York State, who yesterday told everyone they should stay off the roads for the good of all. He stopped short of making it mandatory and closing the roads off like he has in years past. And so did Mayor Dumblasio in New York City. He issued a similar restriction, but didn't exactly prohibit everyone from leap, uh, from driving. I think they thought that might be too far because they've done it in the past, but people have had this big brother stuff shoved down their throat for the past year, telling them they have to stay home, they have to lock down, they can't go here, they can't go there. When they do, they have to wear a mask six feet apart. I think they have sensed they've pushed people far enough. And so they didn't really push to the end saying you can't be on the road and have the police giving tickets and pulling people over and what have you. But after having told everyone to stay off the road, what does Il Duce do? Hops in his car himself and decides to drive from Albany in the snowstorm to New York City. Hey, life's about choices. That's what he says. Apparently, you can make a choice, but the rest of us can't. We have to stay home because you tell us to. Is that right, Il Duce? Now, here's where people think they're entitled. You have a schmuck like Cuomo who thinks he can do whatever he wants and nobody's ever going to discover it or find it out. Well, you've been found out. And tell me why in this internet age that the governor of New York has to drive to New York City in a snowstorm to be able to discharge his official duties. You're trying to tell me there was something he could only do in Manhattan that he couldn't do it from the governor's mansion in Albany? I find that hard to believe. This is the ruling class, ladies and gentlemen, telling you that they can do what you can't do. It Do as we say, not as we do. You're the little people. And this is just another classic example of the things that motivate them and why they hated Donald Trump so much. Donald Trump wasn't the ogre they made him out to be to try and turn public opinion against him. The only thing that Donald Trump did, the only crime that Donald Trump committed was that he wasn't part of the club. He wasn't part of the the in-crowd. He wasn't part of the establishment where you can be taken care of. And you want to have proof that they're being taken care of? Look at this Kleinsmith character, this lawyer from the FBI, who altered an email deliberately to defraud the FISA court, one of the most closely guarded courts, one of the most secretive courts in this country because they have awesome power. He gets convicted. And a judge, appointed by Obama, no coincidence, gives him community service. Do you think you or I would get community service for altering an email, fraud, forging an email? You remember Peter Strzok, the one who was so arrogant in, in the Senate hearings, wouldn't talk about this, wouldn't talk about that, and try to say, I can't because the FBI says I can't talk. He was having an affair with Lisa Page, a lawyer for the FBI, his little paramour, but he was married at the time. I love these people that stand up for what's right. Oh, we're going to save the country. We couldn't save his marriage, but, uh, but apparently the wife stayed with him because she was part of the crowd. The in-crowd knew of the necessity to stand by her man for appearances, at least until the election and all this stuff was over. Well, the election is over now. And by hook or by crook, they've got Joe Biden in the White House. And guess who just got appointed as the chairman of the SEC? For those of you who don't know, that's the Security and Exchange Commission. Very, very powerful commission. 
regulate stocks, transactions, and what have you. Peter Strzok's wife. Peter Strzok's wife is going to be the seat, is going to be the, the, uh, the head of the SEC. See, so if you toe the line and you stand your ground, the establishment will take care of you. Donald Trump wasn't part of that establishment, so they wanted to do everything they could to discourage anybody else who wasn't part of the establishment from ever thinking about doing what Donald Trump did. They wanted it's a closed shop. But now even the people in the closed shop getting a little afraid of big tech. As long as big tech is on their side, big tech is good, but big tech could turn their guns at any time if the Democratic Party pisses them off. And now that they've gotten what they needed out of big tech, I think you may find that there'll be common ground, common ground among the Democrats and the Republicans. Not because they agree about what big tech did. The Republicans will do it because they've been opposed for big tech for a while. The Democrats will do it because now that they've gotten what they wanted out of them, they've gotten Donald Trump out and Joe Biden in, they want to make sure that big tech isn't capable of continuing to do what they have done, where they might be able to retarget them instead of the people they want to be targeting. So look for things to change in big tech. And the governor of Florida, Rick DeSantis, isn't waiting for Congress to act. He's doing his own thing. In this article here in the Epic Times, it states that Florida Governor DeSantis wants to penalize big tech companies for unlawful practices. Let me read some of this for you. Florida Governor Rick Ron DeSantis, not Rick DeSantis, I'm sorry, announced the consequences that big tech companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google will face if they violate the privacy of Floridians and interfere with citizens' access to candidates during an election. Uh, He was very critical of manipulation of news and the censorship of certain individuals. Here's a pull quote. Floridians should have the privacy of their data and personal information protected. Their ability to access and participate in online platforms protected. And their ability to participate in elections free from interference from big tech protected. He said that over the years... These platforms have changed from neutral platforms that provided Americans with the freedom to speak to enforcers of preferred narratives. Consequently, these platforms have played an increasingly decisive role in elections and have negatively impacted Americans who dissent from orthodoxies favored by the big tech cartel. Now, I notice there's a big move on the part of governments all over the world to try and rein these people in. If you recall yesterday's show where I told you that um, Australia wants to start bringing down the hammer on these people because they become like a news aggravator service. They're siphoning off news from other people. They think they should have to pay a tax for that. They're looking to really drop the hammer on these people. DeSantis alluded to the tech giants moderating news that was unfavorable to Joe Biden, banning high-profile conservatives, including President Trump from Twitter and Facebook, and their removal of Parler from social media, um, the social media platform from Amazon service. He said when 2.8 million Americans chose to download the application Parler and share information with friends, family, and colleagues, what was the result? Canceled by Amazon, Google, and Apple. And he's right. That shouldn't be allowed to happen. Under this new measure from the Florida legislature, the technology companies that deplatform a candidate 
during an election will face a daily fine of $100,000 until the candidate's access to the platform is restored. And I would submit that that 100000 is far too light. These, countries, these companies are worth billions. They stand to make billions by supporting uh, candidates. They would probably gladly incur a $100,000 fine a day. Zuckerberg himself donated millions to various campaigns. Why would he care about $100,000 a day? For 10 days, it's a million dollars. He doesn't care. That thing should have another zero after it, a million dollars a day. Then you might get somebody's attention. Lastly, he said, if, if a technology company uses their content and user-related algorithms to suppress or prior, prioritize the access of any content related to a political candidate or cause on the ballot, that company, company will also face daily fines. So there's a lot coming down the pike here. And it's all coming down, headed at big tech. But big tech is not the only problem. I try and worry about the future. You're all worried about the future. Well, what's the biggest part of our future? Our children. We have to worry about our children. And one of the best ways our children are prepared for the future is their education. Our children are not being educated, ladies and gentlemen. Even before COVID, we all had certain reservations, I did, about the educational system, the public educational system in this country being too much of an indoctrination uh, mechanism rather than an education system. In the aftermath of COVID, in many of these blue states, there are no schools anymore. My son had school closed last year in the wake of COVID. Now, in the beginning, I could forgive it because nobody really knew everything about COVID and they were all, everybody was very apprehensive. And so I could, I could sympathize with the Board of Ed and even the teachers union for exercising a little bit of caution. But over the course of the summer, a great deal of information has been known about this virus. And we now know that it may be contagious, it may be prevalent, but it's certainly not overly lethal by any standard you care to name. With 26 million confirmed cases and 400 some odd thousand confirmed deaths, that's a one and a half percent death rate. And that doesn't even accurately represent it, as I said on yesterday's show, because 26 million uh, positive cases are only those people who felt sick enough to go get tested. 97% of all people infected are asymptomatic. So, the actual number of cases in this country is on orders of magnitude greater than 26 million. If we used a factor of 10, we'd be conservative. It's easy to, to consider that um, uh, instead of 26 million, there's easily 126 million people, 150 million people who have been infected with COVID. To have 400 some odd thousand deaths, that's not something that should result in bankrupting and crippling an economy and causing people to delay other health-related matters because everybody is paranoid about COVID. And it certainly isn't justification for keeping our children, who are the least at risk of anyone, from going to school. Now, my son spends a lot of time with me. He comes to work with me because my wife works, I work, I have my own businesses, and I can't really afford to leave him home by himself, so he comes with me. 
And during the day, when my business is, I'm doing administrative work, um, I'm listening to him converse with his teachers and what they're saying. This is a lot of nonsense. I mean, half this stuff is political opinion. It's not actual history. And the quality of the education is not very, very good doing these things remotely. And over the course of the summer, when the teachers union knew that very likely they may have to go to fully remote in the fall, instead of giving up their vacations, they happily traveled here and traveled there. No meetings, no conferences over the summer as to how they were going to deal with this issue come the fall. This I know for a fact, because I have a very good friend who's also a customer, who happens to be a New York City public school teacher, and told me that none of these things were done, and they, by all means, should have been done. The 3% infection rate, not based on any science, they're always saying follow the science, follow the science, arbitrarily selected by the union. Arbitrarily selected by the New York City Teachers Union because they knew it would be an easy number to hit, because they really didn't want to come back and teach. So they're not teaching these children. These, teaching are fall, these children are falling further and further behind. And if they plan on doing this in the fall, I'm pulling my son out of public school and putting him into private school. I'm not allowing him. I'm not allowing his future, his education to be compromised, because a couple of people that run unions think it's, think it's within their purview to try and Uh, condemn an entire generation to a substandard education because they don't feel like coming to work. Now, if we had a strong mayor, and I had my disagreements with Mayor Giuliani, but I can just see it now. If Giuliani was sitting at Gracie Mansion and this sort of chicanery on the part of the union was perpetrated against them, I could already predict what would be done because I know what I would do if I were in that position. I would call Mike Mulgrew, the head of the New York City Teachers Union, into Gracie Mansion and say, listen, I'm not going to mince words with you. This is the bottom line. Your salaries, your contracts, everything are all predicated on you folks coming to work in person, incurring commuting costs, being in the class with the students, interacting, answering their questions, helping them with difficulties, giving out homework and grading papers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're not doing any of that. You want to stay home? Your membership wants to stay home and condemn these children to a substandard education? Fine. You can do it. You're going to all suffer a 20% reduction in salary because your salary, as I said before, presupposed certain things, certain duties that were incumbent upon you. It wasn't to give you this sort of money so that you could sit around in your bathrobe at the luxury of your home and never have to leave and do whatever you want, have your cake and eat it too. No. You want to stay home? You certainly can. You get 20% less salary. Anybody doesn't like it? Tough. You want to get the salary that was negotiated in your contract? Get your butt off the chair, out of the house, in the car, on the train, however you get there, and go to school, and we'll give you 100% salary. Make any issue of it, I'll declare emergency, I'll go to court, I'll get an interlocutory ruling or something, but I will make it stick. And if you continue not to go to work after I direct you to go to work, I may even treat it as a violation of the Taylor Law and not pay you anything and fine you two days pay for every day that you're out. And he would do it, and I'll guarantee you schools would be open. But you have a weak, weak leader, a man who has 
all the spine of a bowl of jello, who's currently at Gracie Mansion right now, who's absolutely beholding to the teachers' union, was afraid of a strike, would never stand up to them. And because of that, your children are suffering. And who's suffering more? The minorities that Bill de Blasio and his ilk seem to be ostensibly so worried about. When in-school learning is offered, white children, for some reason, seem to be more likely to take up that offer and go back to school, maybe because their parents are pushing them to do it. For whatever reason, and I don't propose to know the reason, but for whatever reason, the percentage of children from minority families that choose to go back to school when given the the choice as opposed to staying home and doing distance learning is much lower. And those that do stay home don't even bother logging in half the time and give a half-baked effort. Some kids need to be supervised. They cannot be left to their own devices. Regardless of race, some kids need to be supervised. It's like trying to do a correspondence course. Unless you're exceptionally disciplined, you're not going to do very well with it. The material is good. The course is good, but you need to have the real drive to force yourself to do it. Our kids are kids. They're still maturing. They need a guiding hand. They need to be in school. I call upon the governor to get off his butt. Come on, Il Duce. Get up there and give the old salute and mandate that these teachers go back to school and teach our children. Try being a governor. Try being a mayor, Dumb Blasio. You we don't care too much about. You can't be reelected again. Term limits have done that for you. But the other schmuck in Albany, he thinks he's going to run for a fourth term. Maybe you should start proving that you earned, that you deserve a fourth term. I don't think you deserve the terms you got now. But you better do something. Because a whole generation of New York children are falling further and further behind. And people are fleeing the state in droves. And if you don't think an inadequate education is a driving factor, you're sadly mistaken. Because most parents, my wife and I included, do everything with their children's futures in mind. And it seems to me that the future for children education in the city of New York is very, very grim. Please join us tomorrow when we'll talk about the Keystone Pipeline and the economic impact on the great state of South Dakota. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.